Ah, yes. Welcome into MLB Morning Coffee, the beginning of our 30 teams in 30 days. This is a production of Athletes Unfiltered. Go check out the rest of the podcasts on the Athletes Unfiltered Network. And we are coming to you from the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Fun fact, if you take Interstate 80, it starts in San Francisco and it ends in Ocean City, Maryland. Why do I bring that up? Because our first team is the Baltimore Orioles. And joining us, he is the host of the Lockdown Orioles podcast from the Baltimore area. Please welcome Connor Newcomb. Connor, thanks for jumping on. And yeah, I always, when I drive through Sacramento and I see that sign and it says Ocean City, like 3,100 miles away, I'm like, wow, this road starts here and ends all the way there. And now this is our I-80 connection over Zoom. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Greg, for having me. And, uh, you know, one day, one day, maybe the, the drive is made. I'm sure somebody's made that drive at, at some point in their lives. But uh, yeah, the one road connecting uh, across coasts. I actually have, but I diverted in Cleveland and I went up to the Northeast. So I haven't actually gone 80 the whole way. But anyway, down to brass tacks. Looking at the Orioles last year, it felt like there was a step made in the right direction. Is there a feeling amongst this fan base and amongst the players on this team and coaching staff that this organization is taking a step in the right direction from where they were two years ago? Yeah, there was definitely a, a step taken in the right direction. And, and obviously, a 60-game season can cloud a lot of things. Um, you know, the Orioles were not, you know, a 25 and 35 roster. That ended up being their record in 60 games. Uh, but if they play out a 162-game season last year, that's not going to be their winning percentage, you know, winning 25 of, of 60 games. But there is a, a feeling that things took a step in the right direction and that that's going to continue this year. And, and really those steps have been not so much yet with, you know, a lot of the top prospects because they are still in the minor leagues and, and have yet to, to come up. And really that first batch of guys is actually not going to come up until this year at some point. It was really, you know, seeing that new GM Mike Elias could grab guys in, you know, low value trades, guys off of waivers, guys from the rule five draft, you know, guys who are non-tendered by other teams and he signs to minor league deals. He pretty much has maximized value out of a lot of those guys. And I think the step in the right direction is, okay, if he can maximize their value, what can he do with a team that, that actually has some talent, you know, a couple of years down the road. Going to the Orioles of the present, given that this is such a relatively young team, who is the guy that is seen as the table setter for that lineup? I mean, it's it's got to be Trey Mancini. Um, he's probably going to hit second this year. And, uh, you know, obviously the Orioles missed him last year, you know, got a colon cancer diagnosis in March of last year, um, and he missed the entire 2020 season. Uh, but, but you know, he, he went through his treatments, and he's okay now. He got a hit in his first at-bat of, of spring training against the Pirates on Sunday in their first spring training game. And he was an all-star snub in 2019. If, uh, you know, you never know with, with all he had to go through last year, if he can come back to that level, but he's still young. And if he does come back to that level, he's still got room to get better and better. And, you know, he's, he's kind of the face of that team right now. He's the guy who will be an all-star this year. I would think the Orioles won all-star and he's going to be their, their top hitter. Which is good to see. And it's great to see that Trey Mancini is back and is healthy and one of the more exciting young hitters in baseball. And you never want to see anybody go through what he went through last year. But the fact that he is still here and still with us and is going to be a productive major league player again, that's just a story that everybody in baseball 
is happy to see. We're here with Connor Newcomb of the Locked On Orioles podcast. 30 teams in 30 days here on MLB Morning Coffee. He's giving us a preview of this year's Baltimore Orioles. I want to shift to another young guy. Anthony Santander made a big jump last year. He hit just he hit 11 home runs in just 37 games. Is there a next level that he can get to? Because it feels like he's one of the few guys in the AL East that's like, this guy's got a lot of power, but because he plays on the Orioles, not everybody's talking about him. What I saw from him last year, I was really impressed. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two sides to this because, A, you know, in those 37 games last year, he was really impressive. And, and quite honestly, in 2019, you know, in, in a more full season, he was pretty impressive too. He hit 20 home runs. I don't think anybody really expected that at all from a former Rule 5 draft pick. On the flip side for Santander, you know, it was only 37 games last year. He missed, uh, you know, the last three weeks of the season with an oblique injury. He, he is fully healthy now, but he only played 93 games in 2019. You know, he's been in, in parts of four different big league seasons, but he's only played 176 games in his career, just over a, a full major league baseball season. So, you know, you could almost call it a, a you know, red hot 37 games last year and not, not a really good season because he had a shortened season, shortened even further. So, you know, he's a switch hitter, power from both sides, was a gold glove finalist in right field last year. And, you know, I think he's definitely a guy who could break out and be a middle of the order hitter for the Orioles. But the Orioles were also involving him in some trade rumors this offseason. And I think some of that was because there's a little worry that his value might not be higher than it is right now because he was playing at an all-star level last year, but we still haven't really seen much of him and we have no idea what a full season looks like. The outfield last year of Ryan Mountcastle, Cedric Mullins and Santander was relatively productive from an offensive standpoint. Do you think that that's an outfield core that can be productive when this team is competitive two, three years down the road? Yeah, I think Ryan Mountcastle a year or two from now is going to be the Orioles' best hitter. Um, he is one of the favorites for AL Rookie of the Year this year after a, a fantastic, you know, basically half a season after coming up in 2020. Uh, you know, Mullins, I don't think he's the center fielder of the future. Uh, Austin Hayes, who missed most of last season with a rib injury, is probably going to be the opening day center fielder this year. I think, though, he is the center fielder of the future. And then Santander's definitely a question. I don't know if he is around for the long haul just yet. Um, but I do think that's a, a good-looking outfield. Yuzniel Diaz, who's a young outfielder who was the key piece that came over from the Dodgers in the Manny Machado trade, I think he probably ends up in that outfield, maybe over Santander long-term. But it's really the biggest strength of this Orioles team right now is the outfield. And I get, I'm going to ask this one question, Connor, because I covered him in Cape League ball, and I was really impressed with him. And sadly, it doesn't seem like his career is going to end up being what I thought it would be. Is this a make or break year for DJ Stewart? Yeah. Um, he did home against uh, Aaron Nola in uh, the Orioles game Monday against the Phillies in spring training and had a couple hard hit balls, but he's had a, a, a weird career. You know, he was a former first round pick out of Florida State and he, he was obviously drafted by the old regime. Former Golden and, Spikes Award winner, too. Yeah, so yeah, he, he was, was the best player in college baseball the year he was drafted. Yeah, he was one of the best hitters in college baseball pretty much his entire career and was the best overall player, as you said. And, it, you know, it was a good pick at the time because, you know, they were picking low in the first round and they got the Golden Spikes Award winner. You're going to take that. Uh, but, but you know, he, he made a couple changes to his swing and, you know, he never quite fit in with the Orioles. And now, you know, he's finally getting his shot, but he's still not a starting outfielder because those outfielders we talked about, he's probably going to be the DH to open the season for the Orioles. He's 
pretty shaky in the outfield. Um, you really can't put him anywhere but right field, and, and he's pretty shaky out there. Um, so he's going to be the DH. He's not going to play against lefties. And they're going to basically see, is he valuable enough to keep on the team by mashing right-handers and hitting home runs like he did for a stretch last year? Or is he this streaky hitter we saw last year where he started the year about 0 for 15, went to the alternate site, came back, went on a three-week run where he was basically Babe Ruth and hit six or seven home runs. Then he slumped for the last three weeks of the season again and went like two for 20 to end the year. So they need more consistency out of him. And if he's inconsistent again this year, there's too many guys knocking on the door and, and he's going to be playing in another uniform. Connor Newcomb of the Locked On Orioles podcast joining us here on MLB Morning Coffee. I know that this is a question you probably get asked all the time, but I'm going to ask it again. Is there anything at this point that can be done about Chris Davis? Or are you just literally writing out his contract for the next two years and hoping to say so long, see you later after 2022? Yeah, it's done. It's over for him. I mean, there's nothing. He continues to make changes in the offseason and you, a little bit of a different swing and, and stance, you know, for, for this spring training. But it's over. As you said, two years left on that seven-year deal. I think the Orioles are going to cut him loose after this year. I don't think they'll have him play out um, next year because this is the first year in that contract and, and the first year where he's been, you know, really struggling, where he might be taking – either at bats or at least a roster spot away from a younger player who deserves it more. This will be the first year that that's happening and it'll be even more so that next year. And so I think at the end of 2021, they're just going to cut him loose, pay him for 22 and just give someone else younger, someone part of the future, that roster spot. The Orioles did something surprising in the off season. And that is they pretty much got rid of their entire infield. They traded away Jose Iglesias. They let, Hanser Alberto and Renato Nunez walk out the door, especially those last two. Nunez and Alberto had very productive years, and Nunez two years ago, if my memory serves me correctly, Connor, he hit 30 home runs. Were you surprised that, especially with those last two guys, that they let him just walk out the door? Because both of them, they're signed for almost nothing with their new teams. Yeah, I would say I was honestly not surprised by the Renato Nunez move. And I know, you know, he's probably a more productive hitter. And, you know, as you mentioned, 31 home runs in 2019, he still hit 12 homers last season, had an OPS plus of 121. You know, he was a pretty good hitter. The issue with Renato Nunez is the man cannot play defense anywhere. He came up as a third baseman and he can't play third. The Orioles figured, let's put him at first. You know, most guys who are th third baseman who don't work out, you put him at first and it works out. He couldn't play first. He can't field a ground ball. And so his only spot was DH. And because the Orioles had younger guys like DJ Stewart and guys like Mancini and Mountcastle and Chris Davis still on the roster, Nunez just never had a place. They tried to find a trade partner. They couldn't and ended up getting rid of him. Alberto was a little more confusing because he played a position in second base where the Orioles didn't have anyone kind of pushing from the minors to take over second base. What they did instead was non-tender Alberto and make a waiver claim for Yomer Sanchez from the White Sox. And what that did was basically save $3 million because Alberto was due $4 million and Sanchez is making about $1 million. But Alberto was a fan favorite, um, crushed lefties, you know, hit almost 400 against left-handers back in 2019. Um, it was just a really fun player to watch. And, and that one's definitely hurt. Orioles fans, you know, knowing this team isn't trying to win again. Alberto's not a starter on a winning team, but he's a starter on a bad team, and he's a really fun starter on a bad team, and, and that one definitely hurt. What are your thoughts on Richie Martin? I don't think he's a future piece. I think the Orioles took a chance on him. 
you know, as a former top draft pick by the athletics out of Florida, uh, another great college player we're talking about. Uh, and the A's kind of figured it out that, you know, the bat just wasn't there. They, they left him available in the rule five draft. The Orioles picked him up and, you know, the O's had the option in 2019 of keeping him on the roster the entire year. And they did so because nobody was really pushing him out. They gave him a chance He's a great defender. I'll give him that. But the bat is just not there. He missed all of last year with a wrist injury. Now he has broken a bone in the other wrist this spring training and probably is going to start the season on the injured list. And the Orioles, although the prospects in the infield aren't there yet, the Orioles have acquired a good amount of shortstops in the last couple of drafts and off seasons for their minor league system. And all of those guys, the future looks brighter than Richie Martin. He's a placeholder who will play some this year but I think that's going to be it for him. The bat just isn't there at the major league level. You know what's funny? The reason why I brought up Richie Martin is that I used to cover Cape League baseball, and in 2014, the two best shortstops in the Cape League were Richie Martin and former, what, like 10-game Oriole, Drew Jackson. So you had, at one point, this organization had two of the best college shortstops from that 2014 season, the 2015 draft. Uh I, I really wish, because I actually know Drew, I really wish that he had been able to stick around in Baltimore, but I mean, he was a Rule 5 pick that wasn't ready for the big leagues to begin with, and that was just a recipe that was set up to fail. But we're not here to talk about Drew Jackson. We're here to talk about the current Orioles, and we're doing that with Connor Newcomb right now. Before I translate to the pitching, or transition, I should say, to the pitching, I want to ask about Brandon Hyde. He was viewed as one of these young new wave managers in the mold of a Joe Madden because he came from the Cubs. I feel like people are really high on him. What say the people around Baltimore? Are they like ready for him to take that next step, knowing that this roster is going to continue to get better? Yeah, people in Baltimore are honestly really happy with Brandon Hyde. I think, you know, we talk about, I talked about a bit, Mike Elias kind of pulling the most value out of these waiver claims and these Rule 5 draft picks to kind of string the Orioles along in those couple gap years before your prospects are ready. Mike Elias, uh, you know, has done great, but Brandon Hyde has done the same thing. He's been able to, to pull a lot of value out of these guys and know where they can play and, and you know, work with these versatile guys and, and teach these guys new positions. And, and has pretty much done everything right. And, and to be honest with you, you know, since he took over in 2019, I would say the Orioles have won more games than that roster shows they should have, especially last year winning 25 games and, and not finishing in last of the AL East. That's the big thing. They did not finish last in the division last year, which I think a lot of people gloss over that the Red Sox were a game behind them at the end of the year. But I think Hyde has done a great job. He's kind of a good mix between knowing new age baseball, knowing how to use the numbers, but also still being a player's manager and, you know, getting some of that from Joe Madden. But he's also not a, a Joe Madden, you know, carbon copy. He's not as, you know, kind of outgoing with the media and doesn't give you, you know, as many quotes. He, he plays things a lot more close to the vest. Um, but I like Hyde. I think he buys into what Elias and the front office is doing. But I also think he really sticks up for his players as well. And I think he's going to be a good manager for a winning team when that day comes. Let's move to the pitching now, Connor. Felix Hernandez, what was the objective of this signing? Do you think he has anything left? And do you think that this is the type of person that you sign that you want a leader for a relatively young and unproven rotation? Yeah, to be honest, I have no idea if he's got anything left. I mean, obviously, he signed with the Braves last year and then opted out and did not pitch. So we haven't seen him since 2019 with the Mariners. And those last two years in Seattle were, were frankly abysmal. I mean, he was one of the worst starting pitchers in baseball. And, you know, you hope that a new regime 
uh, a new environment for him, maybe new voices, you know, in his ear can help him with things. I think the goal for Felix Hernandez this year, there's no way he gets back to King Felix. The goal for him in the Orioles is he's probably going to be in the opening day starting rotation. You get him back to a major league average starting pitcher. He helps out your young pitchers that are all going to be cycling through throughout this 2021 season. And he's able to pick up what he said he wants, which is some more strikeouts and some more wins to add to a potential Hall of Fame resume that has taken a major hit over the last few years in Seattle. What he wanted was to sign somewhere with a chance where he knew he'd be in that starting rotation. He'd be able to accrue some numbers and try and get back close to what he was, you know, at his peak in Seattle. I like the signing. If it doesn't work out, it's a minor league deal. And uh, the other thing is, gets more people to watch the game. You know, if the Orioles are throwing a guy like Jorge Lopez, uh, a waiver claim from the Royals last year, people might not watch on a Wednesday night. But if King Felix has taken the mound, people are going to tune in. People are going to be in the ballpark if fans are allowed. And and kind of simply put, I like it for that that reason as well. You mentioned Jorge Lopez, and that was my next question. Why? What's the point of having this guy in the starting rotation? In his last three years at the big league level, he hasn't had an ERA below six. What is the point of having him other than he's a guy that's pitched in the major leagues before and we can't just roll out somebody like a Dean Kramer on opening day and expect him to make 25 starts in a year? Yeah, I think Lopez will be the number five starter probably this year for the Orioles, if I had to guess. Maybe number six if they do do a six-man rotation, which is definitely possible. Uh, But for Lopez, you know, he started – uh, Monday's game against the Phillies, which we got to watch uh, on TV and didn't look great. What the Orioles see in him is he has some of the best movement on his fastball in baseball, some of the best horizontal movement of any fastball in the major leagues. And what the Orioles think is if they can fine tune that pitch, they can turn him into at least a big time ground ball guy who's never going to be an ace, but could be a number five starter, number four starter who gives you innings and is able to go out there and and at least eat some innings for a rebuilding team. Worst case scenario, he continues to pitch like he has. The Orioles DFA him early in the season, and they bring up another one of these young arms. So, you know, it's kind of a a low-risk, high-reward potentially because, you know, he did have a perfect game into the ninth inning a couple years ago with the Royals. He has shown that he can get guys out, and the Orioles are trying to tap into that value. We're here with Connor Newcomb of the Lockdown Orioles podcast. MLB Morning Coffee's 30 teams in 30 days. We are previewing the club out of Baltimore right now. John Means had a really solid 2019 season, and for whatever reason, he had a sophomore slump in 2020. Granted, the what happened in 2020 stays in 2020, and there were a lot of years statistically for guys that you could throw out as outliers. What are you expecting from John Means this year? Is he going to be the guy that had a 3.65 ERA over the course of a full season in 2019? Or is he going to be more like the guy that's a four and a half ERA type pitcher in 2020? Well, what I'll say is, you know, obviously Means had that incredible 2019. He, he basically came out of nowhere, you know, not just around baseball to know and know who he was when he showed up as the Orioles representative at the all-star game, but he wasn't on the radar of a lot of Orioles fans. He was never a top 10 prospect. He was barely a top 30 prospect for most of his time in a system that was nowhere near as good as it is now for the Orioles. He was, you know, kind of a, not a later round pick, but he's an 11th rounder. So he's not, you know, right on the, the, the draft radar as well, but you know, he came up in 2019 and, and showed that, you know, you can get guys out with a really good changeup and he just continued to throw that change up. And that's how he got righties out. 
And I think a lot of people, you know, think last year was some sort of disaster season for John Means. It really wasn't the case. You know, not only does, you know, a guy have to go through a COVID-19 pandemic, but Means lost his father right before opening day and basically, you know, had to, to, to leave the team. Um, and, you know, it was, it, it was a tough time for John Means. And, and when he came back from that situation, you know, it was really tough for him. And, and you could tell on the mound, he had some pretty bad starts. His last four starts of the year, though, in September were fantastic. Six innings, one run against the Mets. Six innings, one run against the Yankees. Against Toronto on September 20th, his second to last start, he struck out a career-high 12 batters in six innings, uh, allowing just one run. And then he finished the season against Toronto again, had nine strikeouts and allowed one run on one hit over six innings. Basically put together the best two starts of his career at the end of the year. He came back last year throwing 95 after throwing 90 in 2019. The changeup wasn't as good, but all the other stuff was way better. His slider, his curveball got much, much better. And I really think all in all, he took a step forward, not a step back in 2020. And I think that's going to continue into 2021, where he is the Orioles opening day starter, and he should be their, their ace this season. One more starting pitcher question for you, Connor. Any expectation for Wade LeBlanc as a high floor, low ceiling veteran? Yeah, I mean, LeBlanc was with the Orioles last year. He made six starts before he had an elbow injury and, and missed the last of the rest of the season. And you know, he came back to the Orioles because he felt like they treated him really well after he got injured. You know, a minor league deal, one-year deal, you go out for the season, some teams might kind of just brush you to the side, but the Orioles uh, made sure to keep him in the loop. Um, and he, you know, felt good about that, and that's why he decided to resign. I think best-case scenario for LeBlanc is they keep six starters, and he makes the team as the number six starter out of camp. Um, if not, he at least helps out with these young arms. In spring training, he's obviously going to throw 85. He's going to get guys out with soft, soft, and softer stuff. And I don't expect a lot from him, but, you know, we'll see. Maybe he could turn in a, a year like Tommy Malone had for the Orioles last year where you think he's nothing, and then he turns into a trade and two prospects at the deadline. The Orioles have a couple of former top five picks in their bullpen. Well, actually, scratch that. One top five pick in Dylan Tate and an early second-round pick in Thomas Eshelman. Is there any expectation for these guys? Because I remember when they were drafted, there was a lot of hype, especially around Dylan Tate for what he could do. But this is, I believe, Dylan Tate's third organization, and he's never seemed to really put it together. Any expectation for either of these two guys or really anybody in the Orioles bullpen outside of Cole Sulcer? Yeah, for the Oriole bullpen, you know, it was really the, the biggest, you know, surprise in a positive sense in the 2020 season for the Orioles. They were expecting to use a whole lot of different pitchers, try a lot of guys out, and it was expected to be, you know, one of the worst units on this team. It turned out to be the best unit. And one of the key reasons why the Orioles were kind of in the playoff race for a while last year and, you know, did win 25 games. You mentioned Dylan Tate, you know, he was drafted fourth overall as a starter. He came over from the Yankees in the Zach Britton trade a couple of years ago. And, you know, he is now kind of a two-inning, you know, bridge bullpen guy. He can throw you the sixth and seventh, the seventh and eighth. He can come in in the fourth if your starter has a bad day and get you to the sixth inning. He is not a big-time strikeout guy, uh, but he's getting a little better in that sense. And what he did do last year was really cut down on the walks. And he's a guy who's, you know, a fastball change-up guy. And both those pitches have insane tail on them. They move away from left-handers like crazy and he's a big ground ball guy who the Orioles are still expecting big things from. Thomas Eshelman, more of a soft tossing righty. 
um, who might make the team uh, and did have a pretty good season last year, but isn't really part of the of the future for the Orioles. But but in that bullpen, you know, there are some guys who really impressed. Paul Fry had an incredible year last year. Tanner Scott throws 99 from the left side, finally found the strike zone last year and had a 1.31 ERA in 21 innings. He's probably going to be the closer. And then Cesar Valdez, who hadn't pitched in the bigs in five or six years, came out there last year for the Orioles and in 14 innings had a 1-2-6 ERA. He throws about 90% change-ups, a pitch he calls the dead fish, which comes in at about 78 miles an hour. Has a lot, <laughs> I love that. Has a lot of uh, good vertical break on it, down and away to left-handers. And he just rolled in and became the Orioles' closer last year at age 35, not having pitched in the bigs in five or six years and throwing 78 miles an hour. So there's a lot of fun guys in this Orioles bullpen, and it's getting even better because a lot of the young guys they're bringing up this year are probably going to start in the pen before they get moved to the starting rotation. So to be honest, that's kind of the unit that I was most surprised by last year and am most excited about this year. You can tell based on Connor's response and my question that my knowledge of the Orioles bullpen is a lot less than my knowledge of the rest of the Orioles roster. That's how many people feel, though. Hey. But that's why we have you on. I, I don't want to do a preview by myself and get everything completely wrong. So we are here with Connor Newcomb of the Lockdown Orioles podcast. Two more questions for you, Connor. Any chance, and I guess the answer is probably no, given that he hasn't had that much minor league time. But is there any chance that we see Adley Rutschman this year? I will say yes, there is a chance. My prediction is if we do see him, it would be in a September call-up situation. I'm not even 100% sure if the September call-ups are going to work exactly the same as they have in the past because I know they're trying to cut down on having 40 guys in September. But I could see that being a scenario. Some people think that Adley's going to you know, show up in Bowie, double-A Bowie this year, light the world on fire, and be in an Oreo uniform by July. I don't think that's the case because he has not played a full minor league season yet. He got drafted in 2019. Of course, he played out the rest of the year after June made it up to low A, and then he was at the alternate site last year, but there was no minor league season. My thought is let him get in a full minor league season this year, mostly probably in double A, but maybe in some triple A as well. Maybe call him up at the end of September if you want to, but my opinion is that he is the Orioles starting catcher on opening day in 2022, and I think that could be even his major league debut. Final question here for Connor. And I'm going to ask this for every preview that we have on. Give me a wins number if you can, but two wins numbers. What's the ceiling? What's the floor? I'll start with the floor because, you know, with a team that's built like this, the floor can continue to go lower and lower. And, you know, the Orioles were a team that did win 47 games back in 2018. This team is better. Uh, than that. So I would say the floor is somewhere in the low fifties where, you know, you, you, you maybe sustain some injuries to guys like John means and Dean Kramer in the rotation and you're starting pitching, you know, just becomes a real issue without those two guys. And it just continues to compile on you, no matter how many offensive weapons you might have. And so I'd say in the low fifties is the floor. I think the ceiling is around 70 wins for this team. I think if they can put things together like they did last year and have some guys kind of overperform like they did in 19 and 20, this team could get around the low 70s in wins. I don't think they're going to sniff anything close to a 500 record yet. I think that could come potentially next year. Um, but I see them being somewhere in the low to mid 60s in wins this year, but, but they could 
touch 70 if uh, things go their way. Connor Newcomb of the Locked On Orioles podcast. Go subscribe to him at Locked On Orioles. He is the man for all of your Orioles coverage. Anything else that you'd like to plug before we say goodbye? Uh, you you said it with the podcast. You know, we're, we're every day, Monday through Friday, uh, bringing you some uh, Orioles action. And, you know, I just want to say, I think a lot of people think the Orioles are by far the worst team in baseball. And they take a lot of crap, honestly, from the national media for, you know, their rebuild. But it's the thing that a lot of teams are doing. And this Orioles team has a lot more exciting players than you think if you, uh, you know, maybe just peek in on them once a week. And, and at worst, you know, you'll get to watch the Yankees and the Rays and the Blue Jays when you're watching the Orioles as well. I will counter that by saying I definitely think the Pittsburgh Pirates are the worst team in baseball, but we might be splitting hairs there. Connor, thank you again for joining us here, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me on. That's it for this edition of MLB Morning Coffee's 30 Teams in 30 Days. We'll be back tomorrow with a new team yet to be determined. Have a great day, everybody.